Welcome to Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com. With you for the next 60 minutes, 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. Hashtag Giants Chat. A reminder, Big Blue Kickoff Live presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes throughout the season. I'm Lance Meadow. Paul Dettino will be joining me shortly. Right now, some of the players are talking to the media in the locker room, but we wanted to start the show anyway, give an opportunity for those of you tuning in to chime in on all things Giants-related. And the Giants now preparing for the Chicago Bears. And I want to open up about the Bears overall and the challenge ahead here before we get into some other Giants team-related news. Mike Garofolo from NFL Network earlier today reported that it looks like Mitchell Trubisky is going to miss another game. So Chase Daniel is in line to start for the Bears for the second straight week. He played on Thanksgiving against the Detroit Lions. Trubisky is dealing with a shoulder injury, an AC joint injury. So it looks as if the Bears are going to take their time with rushing him back. And they have a veteran who is familiar with Matt Nagy's system. Matt Nagy was the quarterback's coach for the Kansas City Chiefs when Chase Daniel was a backup to Alex Smith. So there's familiarity with the scheme. But the Giants are going to be going up against a backup quarterback. And it's interesting. They're going to get Colt McCoy next week. So this will be now two straight weeks where the Giants are going to be facing a backup quarterback. And then if you go back a little bit, they played Nick Mullins with the San Francisco 49ers. And considering they played a combination of Ryan Fitzpatrick and Jameis Winston, you're talking about three backup slash third string quarterbacks in the span of four games. And it's going to become four and five once they play the Redskins. Now, the Giants sometimes have had trouble going up against backup quarterbacks, so I'm not spelling it out that it's going to be a layup for the Giants because the bottom line is this is one of the most opportunistic defenses that the Giants are going to be going up against this weekend. And I'm saying opportunistic in terms of not just the NFC in the entire league. The Bears are plus 14 in turnover differential, which is really mind-boggling. The Giants over the last few weeks, they've gone against the bottom tier of teams in turnover differential. Tampa Bay was dead last. Philadelphia, who they played last week, was third to last, and the Niners were right in between. So each of the last three weeks, they've gone up against teams that have not done a good job protecting the football, and the Giants, at least in the first two games with San Francisco and Tampa Bay, took advantage of that. Plus six turnover differential. Notice it covered up some of the shortcomings on defense. Then what happens is this past game, you don't have those takeaways, it's now difficult to cover up some of the issues on defense, such as getting off the field on third down, getting after the quarterback, stopping the run. So you're seeing how takeaways are somewhat fluky, and I've always believed that. It doesn't mean that you can't present yourself in a position to make plays, but they come and go, just like sacks. You can't necessarily pencil in, hey, we're going to get five or six takeaways in this game, so we know we're going to change field position. And now you're going up against a Bears team well, the Bears are pretty good in terms of being able to pencil in one or two takeaways. As I mentioned, plus 14 in turnover differential. And if you look at their statistics on the season, and I was computing some numbers here, and these numbers really jump off the page in terms of what Chicago has been able to produce so far this season as Paul Dettino comes in. It's a locker room. Hello, Lance. How are we doing, Paul? Odell Beckham Jr. was just finishing up, and... Wanted to make sure we got everything that he had to say on tape. So Absolutely. I apologize for being late, folks. And I did tell the audience that you were on your way. You were still making this show a priority, despite the variety of different things well, that you need to balance on a Thursday. We num- didn't want anybody to be insulted on the program. Maybe. Number 13 is a priority. Yes. Well, that's why. You Go had ahead. a valid reason. Continue but to this talk is what about I was the turnovers because he just said something that will apply. Perfect. Okay. So it's a nice segue here on it the is. program. On Big Blue Kickoff Live. So the Bears lead the NFL with 20 interceptions. Ten different players have at least one interception. 
They've returned, Paul, five of those 20 interceptions for touchdowns. They're also tied for the league lead with 17 forced fumbles. Seven different players have at least one. They've recovered nine of those 17 forced fumbles and returned one for a touchdown. So you take the consideration, 20 interceptions, 17 forced fumbles, and six defensive touchdowns. This team is in a completely separate stratosphere, in my opinion, from the rest of the league, Paul, when it comes to takeaways. Well, and, and that's why, because they're very hungry to go get that ball, much like Yogi Bear used to go after picnic baskets. Uh, what it comes down to is this. According to Odell, Odell says the interceptions aren't a matter of receivers going against DBs. It's a matter of the receivers having to get to their spot and their route before the defensive pressure gets to the quarterback because that's where most of the interceptions occur. The defensive backs are able to make the plays because the defensive pressure on the passer is forcing the ball to come out maybe before the play is being run to its full extent. And that's why then the DB can jump it. Because he sees what's going on in front of him. He understands that the QB is going to probably have to rush his throw and get it out earlier than they want it to come out. And as a result, they can cheat on the route. And that's where they're getting a lot of their interceptions. So that's one thing to note. As far as the clutching and grabbing on the forced fumbles, going after the ball, uh, talk to Will Hernandez about it, Giants offensive left guard. He said what we notice on tape Every team tries to go for a strip. Don't get me wrong. And most teams will always say, first guy, hold the, the, the offensive player up. Second guy, come in. You go for the ball. You go for the strip. You go for the knockout. He said, no, no. The Bears, they do it even more than other teams do. They clearly overemphasize going for that ball. And they do it better than anybody else. Maybe because they spend more time on it. I don't know the answer to that. He didn't know that either. But he said you can tell from watching the tape that they overemphasize that in a game. It's like clearly a priority for them. So when you talk about the picks and the fumbles, those are two dynamics now that the Giants players say is, is very palatable. I mean, it's real. This, these are not imagined numbers. No. These are not fake. Yeah. They're not hollow. They're and legit. they're consistent. It's not as if they had like seven interceptions in one game. You know how the numbers can get lopsided, mm -hmm. Paul? They're even in terms of the distribution across the season. And then furthermore, and I'll leave you with this point and let you get to your next, uh, Khalil Mack, who has eight sacks on the season, you know he only has nine quarterback hits, which is not very many. Yeah. Okay. It just tells you that when he gets there, he gets there on time and he finishes the play. But – to only have nine quarterback hits and already be in, what, week 12 of the season? That's not a whole lot, to be perfectly frank with you. Some some of your pass rushers in this league have 13, 14, 15 quarterback hits by now. He's only got nine. So let me make something clear. When he played the Patriots, remember when Belichick said, you know, People were talking about him in the same atmosphere as Lawrence Taylor. Oh, I remember that famous quote. And Belichick yes. laughed. He laughed. Oh, he chuckled a few times. Well, do you know what Khalil Mack did against the Patriots? Nothing. They totally shut him out of that game. He was a non-factor. Go back and look at the tape. And how did they do it? They, they doubled him with a tight end an awful lot. They ran a move tight end, not in line tight end, but a move tight end over to his side and they made sure that the move tight end smacked him right at the line of scrimmage. 
I believe I've looked at the cutups, and I did this late the other night at like three o'clock in the morning. So my apologies early actually for you. But yeah, anyway, I know. Yes. So my apologies if my memory's a little fuzzy because today's Thursday. Yes, I did this Tuesday night at three a.m. I reviewed all of Khalil Mack's uh, sacks. Five of them have come against the right tackle. Three of them have come against the left tackle. One of them was on a stunt, and only one of them was against the double team. All the other sacks were one-on-one matchups where he just beat the guy. Now, it seems to me, and again, I'm going to pull a Belichick here. You want to talk LT? You really want to talk LT? He used to beat double and triple teams. Khalil Mack is beating single teams for his sacks. I mean... You know, he's not he's not LT. Well, he's a disruptive player. Though. He's a disruptive yeah, nobody's player. Nobody's putting him in Canton yet. I agree with you. He's but it's dis- fair to say he's a disruptive he's a, player. He's a disruptive player in the 2018 quicksand of mediocrity NFL. That's what he is. It's a different game. It's a different game. So basically what I'm saying is I appreciate that he is a very good player and a Pro Bowl caliber player in today's, in today's league. But... To, to suggest that he is an unstoppable force would actually be be overemphasizing it. That, that, that's not the case. Well, I think the important thing is with respect to the Bears, and this to me is the big difference between Khalil Mack as a Raider versus Khalil Mack as a Bear, Paul. You could argue, if you look at who was around him in Oakland, it was the Khalil Mack show. And if you were able to double-team him to your point with a tight end and contain him, you felt okay We've got a shot here to prevent him from disrupting this game. The Bears, it's not just Khalil Mack you got to worry about, Paul. Well, they've they got, got they, Knicks. Leonard Floyd. They've got Danny Trevathan, Roquan Smith. Mm-hmm. Their secondary players, which we were just talking about with Odell Beckham's comments, are very good and opportunistic. So, I mean, this is an overall really strong defensive unit, and I'm talking about strong on every single level oh, it is. of this defense. I'm, I'm not at all yeah. taking a shot at the Bears' defense. No, and, and I wasn't saying that you were. It's just that, to me, there's a difference, I guess. Khalil Mack is a Raider versus Khalil Mack is a Bear. Yeah. It's almost like they're two different players because of the talent around him right now. Well, let, let, let's just say this, right? Um, Hakeem Hicks has 11 quarterback hits. He's on the defensive line. Okay. Only four sacks, but 11 quarterback hits. Mack has nine quarterback hits, of which eight were sacks. Eight quarterback hits apiece for Roy Robertson-Harris and Aaron Lynch. Linebacker. Robertson-Harris has two and a half sacks. Lynch has three. So they've got a bunch of guys. A whole Well, that's four right there we yes. just named, who have a minimum of eight quarterback hits on the season. They have 60 for the year, by the way. Okay? A lot of weapons. This this is what I consider a very good across-the-board defense. Okay? I want to give them their proper due and their proper credit. They're a very good across-the-board defense. They are not a dominant defense, and they don't necessarily have, in my mind, despite the fact that, that Mack can make some big plays, I still don't believe they have just one guy who can wreck a game as much as J.J. Watt can. I still think J.J. Watt, to me, is a more disruptive, single, solitary defensive player than Khalil Mack is. 
I'm sorry, but I do. Well, Watt's been doing it for much longer, so I'm not necessarily going to disagree with you. I think, you know, once Mac plays as many years as Watt and he remains more durable than Watt, because remember, when you talk about J.J. Watt, the only downgrade with him, Paul, is the durability issue. Has not proven that he can stay healthy for at least, like, 14 games every season. Right. No question. So, you know, that to me is impacted in terms of how you look at a player. No question. No question. But anyway, uh, so this is a tough game for the Giants. There's no question about that either. Uh, You know, they're looking at a team. You talked about the turnover ratio before, plus 14 tied for the NFL lead, the 20 picks, all the forced fumbles you're talking about. That's the other thing that's funny. Max got five forced fumbles. (laughs) So that means that even if perhaps he's not hitting the quarterback, he's still putting himself in a position to take it away. Uh, And I don't know how many of those are on the quarterback or how many are on running backs. But, you know, remember OCU Manura used to say, sacks are good, but they're not really good unless you strip the ball. Yeah. Well, he was known for that sack strip, yeah. I mean, that was his signature play. There's no doubt about it. And the guys that could do that, it's great bringing the quarterback down, but if you can also force a turnover while you're taking down the quarterback or, to your point, knock it away from the running back, it's great. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. We're going to get to your phone calls momentarily. Before we get to the phone calls, Paul, While all the emphasis is on the defense, I think it's also appropriate that we at least address the Bears' offense. Now, I mentioned off the top of the show, according to reports, it looks like Chase Daniels is going to get his second straight start in place of Mitchell Trubisky, who's still dealing with the shoulder injury. But the one thing that has been missing from the Bears' offense in terms of consistency this season is the establishment of the run game. Tariq Cohen is a Mm jack-of-all-trades player who is very heavily involved as a receiver, and they are going to run him out wide. They will do that an awful lot. I mean, he scored a touchdown in the right corner of the end zone when Chase Daniel was throwing over the top of the defense. But, you know, they really have yet to get Jordan Howard going and pound the football. If you look at their numbers on the season, the Bears, their rushing offense, they're dead middle of the league, 15th. They're averaging 115 yards per game, but a lot of their heavy lifting is done through short passes and yardage after the catch as opposed to just pounding the ball 25 to 30 times on the ground. Well, this goes back to something that I keep telling people over and over and over again. Their running game, while not terrific, does enough to keep people honest. It's respectable. It's it's periodic. You know, it's not consistently great. I mean, Howard has uh, 530-something yards rushing. Okay, and yeah, he's the like one of their best runners. And, and, and Howard's only averaging 3.3 yards a carry. Okay, but here's the thing. Situational running. When they needed to move the chains, it moves the chains. If they needed to slow the tempo down on a game, they'll get that four-yard run on first down in the fourth quarter when they're trying to milk a two-score lead. Situational running. When they have to be, they can be effective with it, and they certainly can keep a defense honest. It, it, there's enough there to do that. And that's what I'm talking. This is a great example. The Bears are a great example of what I always talk about with having enough of a running game to force the defense to respect it so that they can't cheat against you. And that's really what the Bears do. It's just enough in the right spots to do that. And you can't underemphasize how important that is because let's face it they don't have a selection of superstar skill positions at the quarterback or receiver spot they just don't yeah, and it's not a star-studded group no and by the way cohen 
talking to Alec Ogletree about Cohen, he, he laughed. He said, you know, you watch the film, and you'd swear that there are times the defense just lost track of him. They can't find him <laughs> because he's so small. Yeah, and he's, he's so and he's quick, so quick. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden, it's like he pops out, and you see him, and it's like you're looking for him, and then there he is. He's running past you with the ball. Well, he's the <laughs> second leading receiver on the team. He's got 47 receptions. That's only four behind Taylor Gabriel, who leads the team in receptions. And then, you know, you went through some of the rushing numbers from a running back perspective. He's second on the team, 66 rushes, and he's averaging more yardage per carry than Jordan Howard. So like I said, this is the X factor of their team because Tariq Cohen is the energizer bunny. They use him all around the field. And I think you hit on an interesting point, Paul, by saying they do just enough with the running game to keep defenses honest. And I think the reason they do that is you have to account for Howard, you have to account for Cohen, and then you have to account for the quarterback. So when any of those three guys are on the field, each of them are threats to run the football. The numbers and the reality game shows that as well. Well, look at their third down percentage. Tenth in the NFL at uh, over 42% on third down conversions. Okay? That type of number comes with the fact that you're able to keep a defense off balance. Okay, you're probably not going to have a great third down conversion rate if you're forced to drop back all the time. You're just probably not going to do it. That's just not the way the league is. No, 100%. Third and manageables, the way you do that is you pound the football and you remain balanced on offense. Want to remind you, Big Blue Kickoff Live, presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes throughout the course of the season. All right, let's open up the phone lines. Christian is in New York. He gets us going on Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Christian? Hey, guys. Well, this might surprise you, but I want to mention a few things I miss about Ben McAdoo's offense. Um, he seemed to be really good at using certain routes just to set up some, uh, another route that he actually wants to get to. And is, and that was how Odell got a lot of those long slants for touchdowns. And those are just completely missing. I don't even think we've seen that this year. And also, it seemed like Ben McAdoo made sure that Odell was getting targeted in the red zone a lot. And it's surprising to me that Sterling Shepard actually has the most red zone targets. Well, Shepard has come through with most of his red zone targets. I don't have the exact red zone target numbers in front of me, but I just remember just thinking back throughout the season. I mean, the Niners game, for example, he caught the go-ahead touchdown, and there's been a few other times where he's come through. So, you know, it's all about execution at the end of the day. I mean, I think people get caught up with targets because either they've got the guy on their fantasy team and they're irritated that he's not getting enough scores. <laughs> I mean, I think that's unfortunately part of today's conversation. I'm glad I'm getting a chuckle out of Paul because I think that he can understand and <laughs> relate to that exactly conversation. exactly where I'm coming from. No, and, and I'm, well, not trying to make, I mean, I'm not trying to make light of your point, Christian. It, it, it's just that targets at the end of the day, I want to know more of, well, what are the targets leading to from an efficiency standpoint? Throwing the ball to a guy just for the sake of throwing the ball to the guy when he's double teamed doesn't necessarily do anything to help your offense. If you go to a guy with one-on-one -on -one coverage and he's catching the football for a touchdown, that's probably, at the end of the day, the better decision. Well, yeah, but I'm saying that this is tied into the red zone struggles out throughout the season because Odell has always been a really a really good player in the red zone and has scored a lot of his touchdowns 
by catching the ball right in the end zone. Well, but he's also caught a lot of touchdowns. Here. But I think you got to keep in mind, Christian, if you look over the course of his career, he's also caught a lot of touchdowns and taken it to the distance and taken it to the house from 40 to 50 yards out. That's where a lot of his touchdowns have come, from deep passes or short passes where he does a lot of the heavy lifting. I mean, once again, I'm speaking just off of memory. I don't have any numbers in front of me, but I'd be curious to know your point, how many truly of all of his touchdowns have come from within five yards? I would say a lot more have come from a larger chunk of yardage outside of five yards. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And the other thing is their red zone issues this season, I would argue, stems from the inability to run the football in small spaces inside the 10-yard line, much more so than not feeding Beckham enough. Well, I know uh, it's just that Odell has caught a lot of his touchdowns. I, I mean, we don't have the numbers right in front of us, like you said. But this has been every single year of his career that he has uh, been scoring touchdowns in the red zone. And he also has always had more than five touchdowns in this week and years that he's played this long. And that even includes his rookie year. So, you know, it just seems like Shermer and Shula don't quite know exactly how to get him in the end zone quite, quite as well as McAdoo did. Because Odell was scoring those touchdowns like right out of the gates when he was a rookie. Well, I think a lot of it also has to do with this is year one of the offense. Everybody's still adapting to new roles compared to your point about how McAdoo utilized. Remember, McAdoo was the offensive coordinator for two years before he came, became the head coach. There was a little bit more familiarity with the personnel, and they were more adapted to the offense. So, you know, I think over the course of time, be very interested to see whether they start to utilize him with those slants and maybe the targets go up in the red zone. That's one thing to keep in mind. But I would not get caught up with how many touchdowns he's had at this point in previous seasons. And appreciate the phone call, Christian. Thanks so much for weighing in. His numbers certainly were down somewhat, Paul, at the beginning of the season. Mm -hmm. But he also has a tendency, if you look over the course of his career, to explode in the second half of the season, which I think we've actually seen over the last few games. That's always been the case with him. And quite honestly, talking to him at his locker just a short time ago, he uh, was asked, you know, what do you think about the way your numbers have picked up the last few weeks of the season and how much you and Eli seem to be getting it going again? And he goes, look, 1,000 yards is never a goal for me. That's automatic. I already have 1,000 tattooed on my arm. <laughs> I didn't ask to see it because there's a lot of them there, and yeah. I think it would take quite a while to decipher which one is which. But he goes, no, he goes, I, you know, 1,000, that's, you know, I, that's, he goes, 2,000 is, is more of a goal than that. So, yeah, I mean, Odell Beckham Jr., in my opinion, I laugh at, at those who say, you know, why didn't they, they go to Odell more in a big spot, uh, and especially in the second half? Well, guess what? On the potential go-ahead touchdown with five and a half minutes to go on third down in the most critical play of the game for the Giants' offense, Eli Manning went back to throw, had man-to-man coverage on Beckham, threw to him in the end zone. Odell's jersey got tugged twice. They prevented the incompletion, uh, no call, Giants settled for a field goal and a tie game. I mean, that was the most important critical offensive play of the entire game. And they had Odell. And it didn't work out. Again, no call on the two jersey tugs. It is what it is. But they threw it to the right guy. And they had man-to-man coverage. And it was the right route in the end zone. And the ball was a pretty well-thrown ball. And for obvious reasons, the play did not connect. Apparently, some other people didn't see those obvious reasons. Yes. But 
if that play happens, do you suppose there's a single writer who's complaining on Monday morning about Odell not getting enough targets? If he catches the winning touchdown pass? Well, you know what? It's the old story, Paul. If they convert on the two-point conversion from the one-yard line, is anybody questioning whether or not it was the right decision to go for it? The conversation always changes based on the results. It'd be the same thing. Uh, You know, I'm glad you brought up this whole target debate, touches debate, because it also relates to this fascination with whether or not Saquon Barkley's getting enough touches. And I know you and I haven't done a show together since this debate came out of the last game. But I went back and I looked at the snaps in the second half, Paul. And I think what's important when people want to go crazy over Barkley should have gotten in this amount of touches and so forth, I think you need to put things in context. And you have to understand the amount of at-bats that the Giants actually had opportunities to toy with in the second half. They ran 22 plays in the second half, Paul, mm-hmm. okay? Which is an extremely small amount of plays. Well, yeah, because the, the average NFL offense is going to get over 70 snaps a game. That's the way it's morphed. It used to be about 62, 64, 65. It's over 70 now. All right, so if you go based on the average of 70, 22, I mean, we're not even in the ballpark of half. Correct. Based on that number. So of those 22 plays, Paul, Saquon was on the field for 17 of them. Because remember, he was not in the game. Wayne Goleman was for the second drive of the second Mm -hmm. half. Okay, so 17 opportunities. I'm going to bring that down to 15, Paul. The reason I'm going to bring that down to 15 is Eli Manning was sacked twice. Correct. So if he's sacked, you're not going to get the ball to Saquon Barkley. So we're in agreement. 15 realistic opportunities to get Saquon Barkley the ball, if you want to look at it that way. Mm -hmm. He got five of the 15. Mm -hmm. That's one-third of the touches that realistically he could have gotten. Now, would you say that's low for a half? Yes. Is it low for a star player? Yes. But I think when you take into consideration, they ran 15 plays in the second half. What do people want him to do? Should he get the ball 12 of the 15 times? Should he get it 13 of the 15 times? Should they not try to throw the ball down the field? And also, by the way, they faced a third and 10, a third and 18, and a third and 18. Mm-hmm. So if you even take it a step further of those 15 touches, Paul, is it wise to run the ball on third and 18 and expect Saquon Barkley to run for 20 yards, which he may be capable of, but it's certainly not a high percentage opportunity there. So that's the question that I'm feeding back to people who are constantly going around and around in circles over this debate because and, I think you got to look at the context. And by the, the way, one of those snaps that you're talking about yeah. during which they didn't get the ball to Saquon, they were going to Beckham in the end zone for the go-ahead touchdown. Okay, so then therefore, <laughs> so so then you could even bring the number down lower That's as a result point. of that. Yeah, so we're, we're getting down to, what, 13-12 now opportunities because of the ones that Beckham was involved. And then when you take into consideration, he got five of the 12 from a ratio standpoint, that's not terrible. That's why you got to look at the at-bats. It's hard to utilize your top talent when you don't have enough plate appearances, to use a baseball analogy. And I think a lot of people are just caught up in the box score. He got five touches. But you have to know, well, why did he get the five touches? Well, one of the things that killed their number of at-bats is the fact that Golden Tate fumbled a punt with 10 minutes left in the third quarter, and that was incorrectly ruled again. Another one of those... um, inexplicable Forward ways. progress is what they ruled. They ruled for, and the truth is, that was not. And and even though they had him uh, uh, sh- by the shoelaces, I believe Simonson had him by the shoelaces, uh, Tate was still, you know, hopping and bopping around on, on his other leg trying to do something with the ball, and it came out. And the whistle did not blow until after Goodson had recovered the ball. That's when the whistle finally blew. Now, if that's Giants' ball, a lot in this game changes because now not only do they have a possession there, they also have better field position. 
And all of a sudden, a lot of the momentum that the Eagles were building there early in the second half gets totally short-circuited. You know, I personally believe that that Tate non-fumble call was the turning point in the game, to be perfectly frank with you. That's when I started to feel a little bit queasy about the Giants' chances to win. I think also the Eli Manning interception, and you were talking about targeting Odell Beckham. He actually was targeting him in those circumstances. Malcolm Jenkins made a great play. It was a very tough throw. Bad decision by Eli Manning. He even admitted that after the game. You get at least three points there, Paul, I would argue. I mean, who knows how the second half is going to play out under those circumstances, but maybe it goes to overtime as a result of losing by a field goal in regulation. You just don't know. No, no. It's little things like that. They add up in the end. and, And the funny part about it is Pat Shermer said this the other day, Lance. I don't know. Were you here on Monday? I was not here on Monday, okay. but I did hear his entire press He said something so. on Monday, and he tried to educate the writers with this, and, and he was absolutely right. Every single week, a football team on Monday morning is going to look at their corrections, and you know what? There are times when they win a game and they have more corrections to fix than when they lose a game because every week there are mistakes made by a football team. No football team ever plays the perfect football game. There are mistakes that you have to go through every single Monday. But here's the thing. When you win the game, people tend to think that either you didn't make any mistakes (laughs) or there were only a few. And by definition, if you lost the game, you must have made some dreadful mistakes and there must be a whole ton of them. Overwhelming. But that's really not the case. There will be games during the course of a season where you made more mistakes in a victory than in some of your losses because every week there are mistakes made on Sunday or Monday night or Thursday night. During the course of the game, every team has a bucket load of mistakes. And I think that's part of the problem here is that Because everybody gets so cynical and because everybody's so frustrated and so disgusted when their favorite team loses, okay, this is just a fan's issue with their uh, their mentality, they automatically get inflamed by every little thing that they see that might have been questionable in the loss. And they don't look at it rationally. That's fair. And they don't understand that, hey, you know what? Um... This is only a a tiny speck of the big picture. And maybe in the bigger picture, that mistake wasn't as great as you think it was. Maybe there was something else that kind of led to that situation. Remember, every single coach's call, whether it's defense, offense, or special teams, is a balancing act. He knows that every call he makes, every coordinator, every head coach, knows there is a risk-reward factor. To every single call. If every call had 100% certainty and no risk-reward factor, the game would be easy. And you'd call the same play over and over again. And you would know that every play you call at every point in the game would be correct because there would be a 100% chance of it succeeding the way you drew it up. But that's not the way it happens. And, And what kills me is when a criticism is made over a particular play or a particular idea and the, the folks who make the criticism don't go back and review the situation, understand the parameters, and then say, okay, if you turn back the calendar to that moment in time, you know what? 
Given the risk-reward, that was the best choice. That was the best call. It was the most logical call. Was it perfect? Was it 100%? Of course not, because no call is. But because it didn't work, all of a sudden, the fan or the writer says, that was a stupid call. That was a dumb call. That's the biggest problem when a team loses. Well, and I'll give you the perfect example, somewhat relatable. The drive that Barkley was not in for the second possession of the second half, Paul. A lot of people are saying, well, you know, if Barkley's in, then they have better success on that drive. Well, first of all, Wayne Goleman picks up 12 yards rushing combined on his first two carries. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you get the first down there. Who's Is that a problem? No, I don't think that's a problem. Okay, but let's take it a step further. So let's say Saquon Barkley's in and he gets the first down. What happens then on the very next play, Paul, after Goleman's two runs? Solders called for a false start. That has nothing to do with the running back on the field. Solder's going to get the false start, whether Barkley's there or Goldman's there, okay? Right. So now you're backwards. Okay, then Eli Manning, they call for a pass, okay? It's a solid throw to Corey Coleman, Paul. Drops it. He catches it. That's a first down. Right. He drops it, though. What does that have to do with whether Wayne Goldman or Saquon Barkley are on the field? Nothing. So my point is... You're a fan. You're irritated they lost. You're going back to the drive. How could Saquon Barkley not be on the field? But then when you go back and you look at it through your lens that you're just talking about, you provide the context, you realize, well, wait a minute. The running back was successful. The execution wasn't where it shouldn't have been from players around the running back. So even if Barkley's on the field, they're not necessarily guaranteed to move the chains because of the Solder false start and the Corey Coleman drop. Agreed. And those are things that you have to take into consideration, is my point, during the conversation, as opposed to Paul just looking on a piece of paper and saying, Saquon Barkley got five touches in the second half? Doesn't make any sense. Well, you go back, you look at the drives. I think it doesn't make it right or wrong, okay? You're entitled to your opinion. That's not what Paul and I are saying. We're saying that if you're going to be critical, at least look at it through a lens from a big-picture perspective. That's simply the point. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. Max is in Newark. Max, welcome to Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening? Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I had a question. Well, I had a comment and then a question that I'll take offline because my sure. phone's about to die. Um, I believe the biggest part of this Sunday's game is actually stopping the Bears' running attack. Um we do have a they do have a backup quarterback and I think if they could be successful with running Howard up the middle like other teams have been, they'll hold a big problem for us, especially with the uh, Bears defense being the way they are. That being said, my question is, how do you how do you think our defense would fare against the running attack, which as you mentioned before might be a little bit marginal, but I think Howard has an advantage up the middle against um, uh, our front if they play the way they did some other games. And uh, thanks a lot for taking my question. You got it, and appreciate the phone call, Max. Thanks so much for weighing in. Well, if you go back and you look at the Eagles game, Paul, I think of that drive, seven plays, 61 yards. They ran the ball six times, and it felt like every single run was right up the gut with Josh Adams. So, yeah, if you're the Giants' defense and you're also the Bears' offense, it's copycat league. You're Chicago. Why not test the Giants' defense up the middle? That's something that they certainly have to shore up heading into this game. You know, in terms of trying to fix that, Coach Betcher, the defensive coordinator, had mentioned to us earlier today that he thought specifically on that final drive that guys were pressing. They were trying to do too much. They knew it was crunch time. They knew it was time that they had to stop them. The game was on the line. And he thought that psychologically, you know, certainly the Giants had some trouble with run fits. There's no question about that. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to sugarcoat that. They did have some of those. 
but he said he thought that there were guys who kept thinking about, this is crunch time, got to make a play, got to make a play. And as a result, they got themselves caught out of position. And, and also they got sloppy with their technique because they were so wrapped up in, I got to make this play, I got to make this play. And what happens when you get tight? What happens when you get all intense and you get all frantic over knowing that this is where it's got to happen? Sometimes it throws you off, and then you don't do what it is you're supposed to do. And he thought that that was the case for the Giants on on that Eagles game-winning drive last Sunday. Well, it's been a trend, regardless of what transpired and him believing that they were pressing on that final drive, Paul. You go back the last few games, Matt Breida, heavy lifting in terms of establishing the run. I mean, I'll bring up the numbers here. When you look at the recent running backs that the Giants have gone up against, I mean, everybody, with the exception of Adams, and as a team, the Eagles were well over 100 yards, but individual runners have really set the tone against the Giants. Peterson at 149 right before the bye and a touchdown. Matt Breida, game after the bye, 101 and a touchdown. And then Peterson had a big 50-something yard He did, run okay. If Take got, that off. That's fine. I'll give you that. Payton and Barber, though, was chipping away the entire game. Barber didn't have a 50-yard run. Finished with 106 and a touchdown. So, you know, each and every game, the opposition is saying, hey, we find openings. We're going to continue to attack the Giants. And you don't want a coming-out party for the Bears' rushing attack because Paul and I went over the numbers. They don't necessarily jump off the page, but the Bears will run the ball to keep opposing defenses honest. You don't want this to be the game where Tariq Cohen all of a sudden explodes for a 50-yard run or Jordan Howard to that point. I hate to say it because you never want to make any excuses, but the trade of Snacks Harrison has been very, very, very much felt by the Giants' rush defense. You're talking about the number one defensive tackle in the NFL against the rush. You take him out of that equation, and you know what? The Giants knew when they traded Harrison. For a variety of reasons, that trade had to happen. We discussed that before, so I'm not going to rehash it. But they also knew that they would take a hit there. And they have. That's just... The way it is, that's reality. Well, the one thing I will say, there's no doubt about it, Snacks was solid against the run. But I would make the point, Paul, that there were holes and cracks that we saw even when Snacks was on this roster. For example, he was there for that Saints game when Alvin Kamara Mm -hmm. in the second half had a number of big runs. He was there when Tevin Coleman had that big rushing touchdown in Atlanta, which was a huge turning point. So, yes, significant loss. But even when he was here, the Giants weren't stopping the run like they were in 2016. But they've gotten worse over the no, last I agree, several I agree weeks with you. since I agree he's with gone. You there. And that's all I'm saying. I, I'm, I'm saying that it is no coincidence that the rush defense has suffered worse since he was traded. Let's head back to the phone lines. Edwin is in Brooklyn. Edwin, welcome to Big Blue Kickoff Live. What do you got for us? How you doing, guys? Um, two well. things. Quickly, the first thing is, uh, as far as the play calling is concerned, I hear a lot of, you know, Pat Sherman getting a lot of slack for the play calling, especially in regards to that play towards the end of the uh, first half when it was 13 seconds left and Eli threw the into. Uh, I feel like a lot of fans, like you said, they don't take into perspective, like, the whole scenario and how, like, you know, they expected him to chuck it down to um, Saquon for the first down but forget there was, like, only 13 seconds left. So it's kind of like that whole, you know, they, they just want to nitpick at things rather than taking the whole scenario into consideration. You know what's interesting about that particular play? Eli took the blame for it, saying that he got greedy and he saw that, that Beckham was, was going to the end zone on the post 
and he, and he force-fed and threw it up there because he got greedy and wanted the touchdown. So he took the blame for it because that's what Eli does. He never blames anybody else. He always takes the blame himself. And it's amazing that after all these years in the league, he continuously does that. Yet, in Coach Shermer's press conference, he took the yeah, blame for it back and, and said it was his fault because he called the long pass to Beckham. Too aggressive. He got greedy. He wanted the touchdown. He thought that they could they could really you know put a gut punch on the Eagles, and he was sorry that he called that play. So I don't I don't honestly know if you want to put more blame on Manning or on Shermer for that uh, in terms of you know should they have settled for the field goal or not, but. It's it's a great it's a great lesson to learn um, about when people want to point fingers. Sometimes it's not that easy to find the real culprit. Exactly, yeah. Because I mean, there still would have been complaints because if Eli would have chucked it down and just and they would have just went for the field goal, it would have been like, oh, but why did we take a risk? And it, it's always something. Of course, well, you know, yeah. I I had some guy, and I think Lance and 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 Schmelk also had some guy on Twitter moaning as loud as he could on the Twitter about why didn't they call more plays for Odell Beckham Jr.? Well, how do you know what plays were called? Are you inside Eli Manning's helmet? Are you inside Coach Shermer's headset? Do you know how many plays were called in the game or even in the second half where Beckham might have been the first option? But because of a specific defense or situation that they had to go to option two or they had to call an audible at the line of scrimmage or because maybe there was a penalty, like when Solder got called for the penalty. How do you know that maybe Beckham wasn't the primary guy on that play? How do you know that? Yeah, yeah. Right. it changes the dynamics. And the other thing before we let you continue, Edwin, I remember you know just throughout the course of the season, Pat Shermer time and time again, Paul, when he has gone over plays or has been questioned about targets, he's constantly said, you know what, there was a play where the ball went to Shepard or the ball went to Red Ellison and the initial read was Odell Beckham. But Eli realized he was double-teamed. The coverage rolled to Odell, and Eli chose to go in the opposite direction. So there are times where Odell is the first primary target. No question. And because of how the defense plays, he just doesn't get the football. And, and by the way, may I also tell you, it's it's been my understanding, and I do check into these things, Manning's reads are almost always right. That's what coaches love about him so much. Because he doesn't make mistakes on reads. Now, you know, it's funny when people say uh, during the first half of the season, oh, Eli's checking down too much. He was checking down a lot. He was taking the short-term quick-release receiver. Okay, but do you know why? Because that's what he was told to do. He was told, get rid of the ball quicker. Don't take the sack. Don't, because of the analytics... Don't force the ball down the field into the double coverage. Don't go for the 18-yard pass if you can have the four-yard completion. He was told to do all of that stuff. So when people were ripping Eli saying he's coming off the receivers too quick and he's doing this and he's doing that, well, guess what? He was getting good grades from the coaches because that's what they were telling him to do. All right, Edwin. Appreciate the phone call. Thanks so much for weighing in. Let's head back to the lines. We got... Coach Marvin on the line in Delaware. Coach Marvin, welcome oh, to the board. Oh, my goodness. I love having Coach Marvin on because he understands the game. Coach Marvin, you are the best, man. How's everything? It's going good, Paul. Lance, it's good to see you. Same here. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's going well. I mean, uh, it was a tough uh, game to um, watch in the second half last week. Yep. But uh, today, 
you guys have so many things going on that I'd like to comment on. I don't know if I have the time to comment on it. The play calling and and uh, when you were talking about how uh, plays break down that fans don't understand and um, and the uh, running game, uh, I meant the game where last week where Barkley didn't touch the ball as much. But the first thing I, I wanted to talk about the uh, with the Barkley thing, I think um, Lance, what the fans are talking about, and I, you, you kind of second-guess. You're always second-guessing yourself in these games after it's over uh, because the action is going so fast that people don't know that uh, you, you can you can miss things because as I'm as, as my guys are play calling, um, you, you're trying to set up plays, and um, as you're calling plays, it's not a science. It, it's you just trying to set the other guy up. I love it. I love it. Don't go anywhere, Marvin. Stay right there. You just made a phenomenal point that most fans and certainly the writers don't understand. There are so many plays, especially in the first half of a game, that are purpose plays. They are meant to set up the defense for something you're going to call in the second half. Right. Exactly. Because I'm trying to set him up, and um, that, that's why you're running dies. You might run a play on third down that uh, some people may not think was a good call, was a bad call. And in some cases, you do make those bad calls. I mean, I've made some bad calls. Like, ah, I don't know why I called that. But you're trying to set them up. You may not get the first down, but somewhere along that game, that third down is going to come again, and I'm going to give them the same look. But mm-hmm. this time it may be a big play that busts the game open. And, and sometimes, the- Coach, the other thing is you're giving them a play in the first or second quarter, not because you're setting them up, but because you just want to see what they're going to do. Because exactly. you know that later on in the game, that situation's going to come up, and you don't want to be surprised. You just want to see what their set's going to be. See how they right. react. Right. Like That's like a third and one. You're going to come out in one, in one formation, and you may run a play right up the middle. And they may jam you up, or you, they may, you may get through and get it. But you've got to look at what they did. So the next time you get up there and they know they got an idea what you might do, mm-hmm. so that's what you, come, you come with, check with me, and I would give my kids two plays. You can kill the first one if they line up one way to get you out of that situation where they can't, where they can't be, uh, defend you well. So, I mean, there's so much that goes on in play calling, and you're right, sometimes plays break down. One guy on the backside miss a block. Maybe we break through. Uh, he breaks through, and a um, receiver doesn't block downfield. So we have to see those things and say, look, this is what could happen in this, in this place. If you do what you do on the backside, with you missing that block, they made the stop. Or my, my guy can make a touchdown off it because he's that athletic. But when we, get in the, when we go back over that play, I'm going to tell him, that guy can make that play. If it's another team, they make that play because you didn't make the block. The only reason he made it is because he was a better athlete than the defender. So it's so many mistakes that do happen on plays. It's just that they're so athletic. The guy makes the right play. Sometimes we make a bad call. It's a great call, wrong formation. Hey, Coach so, Marvin, how many years have you been in football? Huh? How many years have you been in football? Oh, I mean, I've been studying. I've been studying it since I was a, a teenager. But I've been—I was coaching for like 14, 15 years. Okay, I've been ha- in law enforcement. 
I had to get out of it. Have you so. ever have you ever coached a perfect game or have you ever seen one of your players play a perfect game? Uh, I never coached a perfect game, but I had a player that did play a perfect game because of the, the level uh, of uh, play uh, he was. A, a, a player. You had a player play a pro- I mean, look, James Butler played the perfect game uh, in, no. in Arizona. And, again, the Super Bowl, Spags told me he gave him the highest grade he ever gave a player. He gave him 100 for that game. So he did play a perfect game. But a right. team, right. have you ever seen a team play the perfect game? The answer is no. no. You, don't, you, you never play a perfect of game. Of course people not. Look at, people look at it and think it was a perfect game because of the That's score. the point. Yeah. And, and that's what they're basing it on, the score itself. And they say, oh, it was perfect. Maybe they didn't give up any sex. But that doesn't necessarily mean it was a perfect game. Exactly. It's, it, it's not as clean cut as people will think it is. And I think sometimes I would say, like, I would have people's parents or something say something about the game. If it's critical, like some fans are. I would say, you know, the best way I can teach you is you get on a staff and get out there and try to teach these guys to play. And you'll understand how much work it takes to teach 11 people to be on the same. <laughs> yeah. It's very, it's very difficult. To, it to really do. is. It and, is. And, and to get them motivated to do those things. Wins should the, never be taken for granted, Coach Marvin. Never. No. No. It's a lot of work. And, and you know, I was, you were talking about Eli and his play calling. Sometimes you got to remember, when they come out of the huddle, there's a pre-read of what they see on mm-hmm. the defense. Now, it's very complicated on their level that no one, like fans, can understand. If they could, they'd be coaching. You can't understand it because the defenses are disguising these coverages so well that you, but someone like of Eli's uh, experience can figure it out. So he comes up with the pre-read. He knows the play. He knows who the primary receiver is. So sometimes when he's picking up the primary receiver and when they come out of that playoff to the snap, you know that the defense is going to start rotating into whatever coverage it is if they disguise it well enough. And then that means they can take Beckham away with that rotation of the coverage, mm-hmm. which means that means there's going to be another route off of that coverage, which Odell will open up the other receiver. Hopefully that happens. Sometimes that don't happen. They cover him up. And that's when your check down comes down. So, as uh, I hear Mariucci says, touchdown to check down. And that's exactly. what a lot of yeah. pros do. It's touchdown to check down. And that's what they're looking for. And then, of they're, course, Coach Marvin, you get the play where the receiver runs the play, the quarterback sees it, there's a penalty on the play, and the official decides not to throw the flag. You get those two, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you just got to deal with it. And I argue with you guys about play calling, I mean, um, refereeing games. And, and you know, I, I'd be respectful, but sometimes I've gotten a little nasty. <laughs> well, it happens to everybody. Listen, it's the, it's the human element of the game. I'll say something comical to them. I'll, I'll say something like, you guys need to put your mask on when you go get your check from here because you're robbing me today, you know. <laughs> I'll, I'll say something smart to them. But they do their best, too. They're humans, too, and, and it happens. You just somehow, even though it frustrates you, it makes you mad, you've got to figure a way how to overcome it and come up with another play that can help you overcome it. And, and if you keep in your mindset that that play, that call hurts your team, guess what? You ain't going to never get over it through the game. You're going to still be 
talking about. If that play didn't happen, we would have done this. Well, listen, okay. good teams overcome bad calls, as I always say yeah. that. That's the bottom yeah. line. Yeah. Listen, Marvin, we, we, yeah, we, 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 we want to get to a few more calls, so we appreciate you weighing okay. in, Coach Marvin. And the only thing oh, okay. I would say about that is because of the quicksand of mediocrity in the league and there are so many teams that are simply mediocre, there aren't enough teams right now that are that good that can continuously overcome suspect officiating. Well, the- and, and more games, more games now than ever before are heavily influenced by either calls or non-calls than in the history of the NFL. Well, I but, really believe that. But keeping it specifically to the Giants, I think this year, this Giants team, as we've seen because of their issues, is not good enough to overcome bad calls. Most teams in the league aren't. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, there's going to be teams like the Saints and the Rams who are prolific offenses that I think, you know, one bad drive, one bad call can find a way. doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but can find a way. The Giants, I just don't think right now, are at that same level. And, They're not. And that's why we've seen that throughout the season. Let's go to Joe in Pennsylvania. Joe, what's happening? Uh, I'm just talking about, I just want to uh, refer to what you are talking about. You talked about Snacks Harrison. Uh, Paul says, you know, it's a mistake because of the running game. And you and you said, well, back then, this and, this and that. Uh, we weren't doing as well anyway. They were running on us. But our offense, Lance, at that time was not doing nothing. We had, you know what I mean, we did not have the ball, control the ball at all. And you see, Our offensive line was terrible. The big thing, I think, in that trade, it's just in, and I never want to see the Giants do it again. It, to me, it's like throwing in the towel when you trade key players when you're not improving your team for this year, and we still had chances. I don't care what you say. They threw in the towel early, and 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 that hurt. It sets a tone, and it's bad, and I hope they never do it again. Well, I mean, listen, we, we've gone over the ins and outs of the trade, and a lot of it had to do with collecting draft picks and thinking about – the future yeah, but that's and going for next year, you're thrown in the towel. Well, no, for this but year. well, but but Joe, they made that trade when they made that trade. The team was a number of games below 500. Yeah, but and, yeah, I understand that. But and, 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 Joe, and Joe, and Joe, and Joe, they're still hold on, we Joe. Were, you but can Joe, see, if we were to win this Eagle game, no, I, it sets a bad tone. No, I, I completely you're disagree not, with you. I, yeah, not, if they if they would, Joe, Joe, if they would have won the Eagles game, yes, mathematically they'd still be alive. They're still mathematically alive. But the bottom line. Is the bottom line is they have not won a game within the division. So every game that you're taking into consideration within the standings, they're an additional game back. They lost all three of their divisional games in the first half of the season. So when everybody was looking at the standings, when they were two games back, they were really three games back. When they were three games back, they were four games back because they would have lost out on the tiebreaker. Our division stunk. We were still two, three back from the top. So that's all. In one key game or so, we would have been in it. It sets a bad tone. Now I want to tell you about... uh, our coach there on that play uh, thrown in that uh, that long pass from Eli, too, uh, there. The week before against the Bucks, it upset me very much. It was fourth and two on the 40, and he didn't want to go for it because he was afraid to, that, you know, it would give them momentum. This this week here, we, ha- we didn't need it, this, any kind of momentum in that. We had the chances right there to just, you know what I mean, he throws the ball up. For oh, an opportunity to score there. three I points. I don't understand yeah. that. 
Well, listen, I, we, we went over that play. I, I thought that was a big turning point to the game. I, I said that on the I postgame show, and I'm not disagreeing and, with you. And I just want to leave you with one more thing here. I can see why the fans are upset. I know Barkley only touched the ball five times. The key, and you could put this on, on, on the bulletin board, the Eagles never stopped Barkley. So you can put it who stopped them. We'll see it. Thank you. Bye. All right, Joe. I mean, I, I completely disagree with your point about, well, the Eagles never stopped Saquon Barkley. We went over possessions where the Giants shot themselves in the foot. So false starts, sacks, third and 10s, third and 18s, third and 18s were basically unforced errors. And when you put yourself in that position, yeah, you can argue the Eagles didn't stop Barkley, but that down does not call for Barkley to then run the ball up the middle because it's not a high percentage play. So once again, context is important when you take into consideration why Barkley didn't get X amount of touches. Let's head back to the lines. We got Charlie in Portland. Charlie, what's happening? Hey, guys. Now you have the GM on, and you just had the coach on. So yes, well, that's great that you follow through. <laughs> yes, timing is everything. <laughs> hey, look, I, you know, I can – look, I mean, we were complaining, or people are complaining, Joe was complaining that, you know – uh, Shermer, you know, didn't go for it when we were on the 40. He was too conservative. So now he gets aggressive, and we're complaining that uh, he got aggressive. That's a good point. Yeah, you're damned uh, if you do, you're damned if you don't. Right. I mean, to me, he knows the history of the Eagles. He was on the Eagles team. He knows how we've lost to the Eagles so many times, and if that we didn't put these guys away and really make a play and make it so they, you know, he knew that if it was close, the Eagles would win the game because they always do. So I have no problem him throwing that ball in the end zone, trying to get a touchdown, and trying to go up like 20-whatever it would have been, 26-3 to three at that point, or maybe they would have gone down and scored. Who knows? But I can totally understand why he did that. He wanted to put a dagger in, into the team. He wanted to finally, you know, we needed to finally put a team away. And so I totally understand that now some fans are upset because Barkley didn't touch the ball I think what they're saying is there was one series you were talking about it Barkley ran for two or three yards and then Eli got sacked what they're saying is why didn't they give the ball to Barkley again instead of trying to throw the pass and Eli getting sacked you know that you know I don't remember when that was or where it was but it's it's like one of those plays they wouldn't have been in that that well you're talking about yeah it was on the first possession I'm bringing it up First possession yeah. coming out in the third quarter, Charlie, to your point. First and right. 10 from their own 10. Barkley ran up the middle for three. And then on the yeah. very next play, second and seven, Eli Manning sacked. He loses 11. And then it becomes right. third and 18. So, right. so you're, so you're saying on second and seven to run is, the football. Yeah, run it, run it again with Barkley. You know, maybe That's fair. You get another three or four yards, and then you got a third and, you know, Whatever, you know, third and four, third and three. Um, but, you know, I mean, but that's neither here nor there, you know, because it, it, they didn't do it. But uh, And the other thing is about corrections is, like, I know there's corrections that have to be made in every game, but are we – are we actually making the corrections or are we actually doing the same thing every week? You know, are we correcting the same thing every week? It seems like tackling-wise, we are trying to correct the same thing every week. Um, Ta- you know, tackling, unfortunately, people. the way it is, Charlie, uh, you know, the CBA doesn't really let you work on tackling during the season. So if your team is not a terrific tackling team in the from the get-go, it's very difficult to fix that until the next training camp. I mean, look, I, I just had a conversation the other day with one of the coaches, and I won't tell you who it is. 
I said, I really feel bad for most of the defensive coordinators in this league because the tackling is so sloppy and so suspect. And it's like, even in the old days, if a guy made a mistake, okay, if he was able to be quick enough and recover, he was he was a better tackler than the guys are now. So it might be possible that maybe instead of allowing a 15-yard run on a mistake when he missed a gap, if he was able to somewhat get back into the play, he might tackle the guy after five yards. And, and okay, the guy gained some yardage, but at least because he was able to grab a hold of him and knows how to wrap up and knows how to hit the guy, maybe you minimize the damage. Today, if one guy makes a mistake, the second guy comes in, he tries to bump him down, or he tries to play flag football, and all of a sudden, that one guy who missed the gap turns into a 15-yard run. Because there's nobody on the team who knows how to wrap up and throw him to the ground. Fundamentals. Yeah, I know. That's what it I comes know. down I was, to. I was watching the replay of the Panther and Seattle game. There's one team that can really tackle, and that was the Panthers. I mean, their secondary, I mean, they, they were tackling. They, they, they didn't let anybody get by them. Charlie, I, mean, I, I gave up keeping, I, in my film work, my tape work every week, I used to keep a chart of missed tackles. Okay? Yeah. I finally gave up a few years ago. Because it was to the point where it was so ridiculous, I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. All right? It, it, and, and here he was the thing. You could almost chart with 80% accuracy a team that had six or seven missed tackles or fewer in a game usually had a very good chance to win. It was almost as good as the turnover stat. Really, wow. it was yeah. that good. Yeah. And yeah. then you'd say, okay, let's see. How many of the, 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 the games did this team lose so far this year? You look. All right, let me go back and see how many missed tackles in each game. And you know what you'd find, Charlie? 12, 13, 11, 10, 14. It's like, are you kidding me? This isn't a coincidence. It actually does correlate. And it got to the point where a few years ago, the, the numbers were just hitting double digits too often. I'm like, there's no point in even doing this anymore because there's, you know, teams aren't even having five or six or seven games during the course of a season where they actually tackle well enough that you can delineate a difference. Everybody's yeah. missing like 10 tackles a game now. It's just ridiculous. Well, and Charlie, you're right. I mean, missed tackling has certainly impacted the Giants. The Panthers, you brought up, Charlie, when you were saying you were watching the Seahawks game. Well, go back to that Giants-Panthers game. How many missed tackles did the Giants have on defense where Carolina was bouncing off of defenders? And then last awful. week, last week, the Zach Ertz play. Zach awful. Ertz, it's a short awful. pass. He gets past one guy, and then he cuts through two defenders and gets it to the end zone. I mean, it probably would have been a five-yard catch. You bring him right. down. Instead, he winds up getting into the end zone for 15 yards out. So, yeah, those things make a difference. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, and, uh, I, would, you know, the other thing I was just going to say is that, you know, I mean, it's good coordinators like Sean Payton and those people, or even the guy in Pittsburgh, they seem to get their guy open. Like, you know, A.B. gets open. Somehow they'll get the ball to him, even though he's double-teamed probably the whole game. They'll find a way, a scheme, something to get him open. And we got to do that with Odell. we got to find a way to get this guy open and utilize him that way. And, and other teams get their stars open. They, they'll do it even if they're double-teamed. Julio Jones, they double-team him all the time, but they'll find a way to get this guy okay, open. Okay, hold on now, Charlie. Hold on, yeah. hold on. Yeah. i got to. I got to put the brakes on you here because Julio Jones, up until like week nine of this season, didn't have a touchdown catch. 
So if he's getting so open all the time and the Falcons are so creative, how come he couldn't find the end zone? You know, and by well, the way, and, and uh, all right, but but, but predominantly this well, season, Beckham's he, got three touchdowns in the last right. three games. So. so predominantly this season, he hasn't found the end zone. So that's that that kind of contradicts your remark. And to be honest with you, look at how many times about two or three years ago, people were thinking that Philip Rivers was done because the Chargers' offensive line was a joke. They didn't have a running game going, and Philip Rivers was all of a sudden a terrible quarterback. Well, guess what? Uh, the Chargers decided to build up their line a little bit. They decided yeah. to add a running game again. Yep. And now Phillip Rivers is supposedly one of those guys who's beating Father Time. I mean, this stuff, it, it, it's so simple, but people ignore it when they want to criticize. Yeah, yeah I, know, I, I agree. And I'm not just saying get Odell open so he scores touchdowns every time he gets the ball. I'm just saying, you know, I mean, 30-yard pass or a 20-yard pass is just as good getting us down the field. You know, I, I, but I'm just saying good coordinators will find a way to get their star player open and, and get him the ball. And I just think we need to do that more with Odell. And, you know, hopefully Shermer will figure that out. And, uh, hey, let's see what happens. You know, I got a feeling we're going to beat the Bears. Um, I just think it's a good matchup for us. Not a Mac, of course, but I think offensively, and if our defense can finally, uh, you know, get their act together here a little bit and play like they did in the first two or three games this year, uh, I think uh, I think we can beat these guys. And I was going to say one thing. There's one thing we can look at on this team, the New York Giants. We have a good special team. Our special team is Rojas is great. Rojas, Our yeah. punter is great. Corey Coleman. Our return team is good. I mean, even, in, you know, our, our special team has been a weakness. It is not a weakness anymore on this New York no, Giants I team. agree with you, Charlie, and appreciate that. We'll let you go on that point. Real yep. fast. Ciao, guys. Rosas yep. has had a sensational year. Dixon's had a really good year. The return game came to life when Henderson and Coleman yep. took care of the punts and the kickoff returns. Unfortunately, Henderson's now out with the shoulder. He's he's probably not going to play again the rest of the season. Uh, so that is to be a little bit more fair about the special teams. They haven't been great all season. The returns were not good earlier no, in the year. No, was, that was the turning point when okay. they called up Henderson and then acquired Coleman and allowed him and to return kickoffs. Kick That's fair. coverage has been sporadic. Good at times, not so good at other times, just to be fair. The only other remark I want to make, remember when every coordinator says, I'm going to do everything I can to scheme my star player open, it's going to take time to run those plays. And if the coordinator does not believe that his offensive line has the reliability and the capability of giving him a chance to run a certain diagram to get that guy open, chances are he's going to shy away from it and he's going to be more simplistic and he's not going to be as creative because he's not going to think his quarterback has the time to get the guy the ball under the circumstances that he's trying to create. Understand that. And I believe that the Giants' fourth machination of their offensive line, which they're playing with now, is the first one that I believe they have real confidence in to allow them to open up the playbook. And get the ball down the field. Because you brought up, and we were talking about this earlier, early in the season, Eli Manning being told to dump it off because he just didn't have time to survey the field. Whereas if you bring in the Steelers to this conversation, which is what Charlie mentioned, you're talking about, 
arguably one of the best offensive lines in football that Ben Roethlisberger has. Juju Smith-Schuster's emergence has also Mm -hmm. been a huge advantage to Antonio Brown. Look up the numbers. Juju actually, and I brought him up while we were talking to Charlie, Juju's the leading receiver on that team in terms Mm -hmm. of receptions, and he's only about 10 yards behind Antonio Brown, uh, 10 targets, excuse me, behind Antonio Brown, and he's got more receiving yards than Antonio Brown. So, you know, the dynamics of a team and how they utilize personnel, the offensive line, the running game, also determines how successful you are in getting the football to your start player. No doubt about that. A reminder, Big Blue Kickoff Live presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes throughout the season. We want to thank everybody for tuning in to Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Back up and running tomorrow again at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. For Paul Dettino, I'm Lance Meadow. We'll speak to you tomorrow right here on Giants.com. Have a good one.